Welcome to EQ Minds Recharge Your Mental Health Podcast. I'm Chelsea Pottinger, the host of this show, and today we welcome on Dr. Matthew Walker, who is a neuroscientist and psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley, and he is also the founder and director of the Center for Human Sleep Science. Dr. Walker's research examines the impact of sleep on human health and disease. It's such a pleasure to have him on the show. And this podcast wouldn't be made possible without our sponsor, Chili Technology. So without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Matt Walker onto our podcast today. So one of the things I want to get started is given our audience of very time-sensitive professionals, is how much sleep do we actually need and what is the impact if we just aren't getting enough? So the recommendation right now is that we all need somewhere between seven to nine hours of sleep. And there is a distribution. You know, the common recommendation by the World Health Organization is eight hours. Mm-hmm. And that's a good target, but there is a range. And it's very similar to calories. You know, you could say the average male adult would need 2,500 calories a day. But depending on your physiology, what you're doing, there will be variants. What we do know, however, is that once you get below seven hours of sleep, we can measure clear scientifically valid impairments in both your brain and your body. And I think one of the things that people don't realize about that is your subjective sense of how well you're doing when you are underslept is a miserable predictor of objectively how well you're doing when you are underslept. In other words, you don't know you're sleep deprived when you're sleep deprived. So it's a little bit like a drunk driver at a bar who's had, you know, seven or eight beers. They pick up their car keys and they say, I'm fine to drive home. And your response is, no, I know that you think you're fine to drive, but trust me, objectively, you're not. And it's the same way with insufficient sleep once you drop below that seven hours. Yeah, because I think over here, you know, and I think across the whole professional world is that honor the people that work till two in the morning and sending off emails and then get to the office by 6am. And what really stood out for me was reading your research and your book was the actual impact on productivity. Yeah, and it is funny, you're so true that we do sleep has an image problem, and that we label people who get sufficient sleep with this badge of being lazy or slothful. Um, So it is stigmatized in that way. Mm. And there's almost in some industries, not in all and not all people, but there's this almost sleep machismo attitude that, you know, I'm one of those. We lord the airport warrior who's flown through two different time zones within the past, you know, 24 hours was on email until two. And then they're back in the office at six the next morning. What I would say is that when a human being has gone without sleep for 20 hours, they are as cognitively impaired as they would be if they were legally drunk. Wow. And I make that statement because no one would say, I have this wonderful employee. They are drunk all of the time. (laughs) (laughs) We often say, you know, I have this wonderful employee. They're just in the office all of the time. Well, it, it is a real fallacy. And I think it comes on to something that you mentioned, which is productivity. And the evidence is very clear, which bucks a myth out there less sleep does not equal more productivity. It was untrue in the rote industrial era, and it's never been more true now in the digital knowledge era. I can make that case on the basis of empirical evidence, I should note. Firstly, we know that underslept employees, and we've done these studies and other people have done too, underslept employees, and this is typically, let's say, six hours of sleep or less, they will firstly select less challenging problems if you give them the option. So they're more likely to just listen to voice messages or do email rather than dig into the deep, hard project work. 
Second, of those problems that they do select, they end up producing fewer creative solutions. And, you know, I think you and I both know that in the business sphere, we both, you know, will um, consult for Fortune 500 companies, give these talks. Um, it's very clear that creativity and ingenuity are supposed to be the engines that drive business forward, but that will fail and buckle under the weight of insufficient sleep. There are three other things I think that business leaders and employees should know. Firstly, underslept employees will exert less effort when working in groups. So they will just slack off and ride the coattails of other people's hard work. And that's something that we actually, we have a name for it. It's called social loafing, if mm -hmm. you would believe it. We see that with insufficient sleep. The fourth thing which is quite worrying is that the less and less sleep an employee has had, the more and more likely they are to engage in deviant behavior, unethical behavior, and lie. So falsify data in a spreadsheet or you know, incorrectly claim reimbursements. And the final thing we've discovered, which is, I think this is fascinating, the impact of a lack of sleep goes all the way up to the top of the business leadership chain. What we've discovered is that the more or less sleep that a business leader has had from one night to the next, the more or less charismatic that employees will rate that business leader from one day to the next, even though they know nothing about how much sleep the business leader, the CEO has had, it's evidential in their behavior. So I really, I think sound sleep is sound business. That's, that's the very clear message here. Wow. And for any CEOs listening, that's a key message right there to be more charismatic, get some good sleep. So I, I read in your book as well around the, you know, the surgeons and the mistakes that they make. And I found that really fascinating, you know, in the upstairs part of the brain. So I'd love you to quickly touch on that. It's frightening statistics that we now have. You know, one of the professions where clear work acumen is essential, but yet sleep is deficient is within the practice of medicine. You know, and as medics, you know, when you take that oath, when you start medical school, the first premise is do no harm. But we put our young junior doctors and medical residents in this terrible position when they are training, where they're pulling long hours. And there are some frightening statistics. Firstly, we know that junior doctors who have worked a 30-hour shift will make 460% more diagnostic errors in the intensive care unit. Secondly, if your surgeon has slept only six hours in the past 24, they are 170% more likely to cause a major surgical error, such as um, causing hemorrhage, um, leaving an implement in you relative to that same surgeon if they have had a full night of sleep. We also know that one out of every five junior doctors will make a serious medical error caused by fatigue and insufficient sleep. One in 20 of them will kill a patient because of insufficient sleep. And finally, the irony is that when those junior doctors start to drive home after a 30-hour shift and they get back in their car, they are 168% more likely to get into a car crash themselves because of these micro-sleeps lending themselves back in the emergency room from where they just came, but now as a patient. Wow. So, the, you know, it, it just strikes me there is a desperate revision of sleep priority that needs to happen throughout the medical industry. Absolutely. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Chile Technology. Even though winter is here, we still need a cool body core temperature to have great sleep efficiency and deep REM. An easy way to get our body core temp down is by using an Aula from Chili Technology. You just slip it over your mattress, switch it on, set your temperature, 
and you're away. They even come in single so you can set your own temperature since partners often like to sleep at different temperatures. To get a great night's sleep and 15% off, head to eqminds.com forward slash podcast and use the code eqminds15 for the Aula system. Leading on to the next part around, you know, I think a lot of people use alcohol to take the edge off after work. And I, I used to work with colleagues that would do the same thing. I used to do the same thing because we would believe that it actually helped you drift off into sleep. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, it's very natural to think that. And a lot of people will use alcohol as a sleep aid. It's probably the mis- misunderstood sleep aid out there. Unfortunately, alcohol is a class of drug that we call the sedatives. And sedation is not sleep. And many mistake the former for the latter. It's also problematic because not only does alcohol simply just sedate you and knock out your cortex so you become unconscious rather than go into naturalistic sleep, alcohol will do two other things throughout the night. Firstly, it will fragment your sleep so that you wake up many more times throughout the night. Often they're brief and you don't commit them to memory. They do have a demonstrable impact on the quality of your sleep. And the final thing is that alcohol is one of the most potent drugs that we know of for blocking your rapid eye movement sleep or your REM sleep, and that's dream sleep. And that's essential for a collection of different functions, including EQ or emotional intelligence, as well as it providing a form of overnight therapy. Dream sleep is emotional first aid, and you will deprive yourself of that by way of drinking too much. Wow. Okay, so if they're not drinking to get themselves off to sleep, what are your top tips to help busy professionals tonight get some really, really good sleep? Well, I think people can probably do five things tonight to start getting better sleep. The first is regularity. And if there is one piece of advice you take away and try to implement, this would be it. Go to bed at the same time and wake up at the same time, as long as that time period gives you, you know, at least an eight hour opportunity. Even if it's the weekend, don't be tempted to do that sleep in late and then try to drag yourself back come Sunday night as if you're trying to fly back and forth, you know, from one coast to the other. It's torture on your biology. So weekend, weekday, even if you've had a bad night of sleep, still wake up at the same time and then get yourself into set the next day. Regularity is king in that regard. Number two is darkness. We are a dark deprived society in this modern era. And we need darkness in the evening to release a hormone called melatonin. And melatonin times the healthy onset of our sleep. So in the last hour before bed, you don't need all of the lights blazing in your house. Turn half of them down and you'd be surprised actually at how soporific and sort of sleep inducing that makes you feel. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, stay away from screens in the last hour. If you really have to work on screens install software that takes away the harsh blue light and you can just google software to diminish blue led screen light some people were these um, blue light blocking glasses there was one study that demonstrated it does seem to help but there's no good validity on the glasses that are out there right now that you can buy but darkness is key the third thing is temperature your brain and your body need to drop their core temperature by about one degree celsius to initiate good sleep 
And that's the reason you will always find it easier to fall asleep in a room that is too cold than too hot, because the room that's too cold is at least taking your brain and body in the right temperature direction for good sleep. So probably somewhere around 17 degrees is probably optimal for many people, uh, maybe a little bit less if you can stomach it. It sounds cold, but cold it must be. The next thing I would say is walk it out. <laughs> and what I mean by this is if you've been awake in bed, and you've been awake for maybe 20 or 25 minutes, either trying to fall asleep or fall back asleep. Don't stay in bed because your brain very quickly learns an association, which is that your bed is the place of being awake, not being asleep. So what you should do is get up, go to another room in dim lights, just read a book, listen to a podcast, but don't check email, don't eat because it trains your body to expect those things. Mm -hmm. And then only return to bed when you are very sleepy. There is no time cut off, only return when you're sleepy. And that way your brain will relearn the association that your bed is the place of sleep and you will feel better. A lot of people tell me, you know, I'm falling asleep on you know, the couch watching television and then I get into bed and I'm wide awake and I don't know why. And it's because you've learned that association. The final two things which make me deeply unpopular Although I'm, I'm <laughs> genuinely an unpopular person in truth, Chelsea. <laughs> First thing we've spoken about alcohol, you should really forego alcohol. You know, life is to be lived, and I don't mean to sound like a prude, but try to really keep it under control if you want good sleep. If you're going to bed tipsy, that's a really a sign that you've drunk too much. Caffeine, though, is the other one. It's the culprit. Everyone knows that caffeine can keep you awake. Caffeine is a class of drug that we call a psychoactive stimulant. It's actually the only psychoactive stimulant that we readily give to our children. But for adults, often people will have a cup of coffee or a tea after dinner. You need to be careful. Firstly, some people are affected and they know it and they don't sort of stray towards caffeine in the evening. Some people will tell me, I can have a cup of coffee, and I can fall asleep fine and stay asleep. Even if that's true, we did some studies several years back, and we gave people one single dose of a standard cup of coffee, 200 milligrams of caffeine. And what we found is that that cup of coffee blocked the deep sleep or reduced their deep sleep by about 20%. So to put that in context, I would have to age you by about 10 or 15 years to produce that type of a decrease in your deep sleep. Or you can do it every night by just drinking a cup of coffee after dinner. Wow. So, um, I should also note, by the way, caffeine has a timeline to it that people are probably unaware of. Caffeine has a half-life of about six hours. That simply means that after about six hours, half of the caffeine is still in your system. But it has a quarter life of 12 hours. So if you have a cup of coffee at noon, a quarter of it is still in your brain at midnight. So that would be the equivalent of getting into bed at midnight. And just before you turn the lights out, you swig a quarter of a cup of Starbucks and you hope for a good night of sleep. It's probably not going to happen. So people should just be a bit more aware of caffeine. And that was one of the reasons I went into detail in terms of caffeine in the book. If they are going to have caffeine before noon, last coffee, would you suggest? I would do. Yeah. Mm. And at that point, I would, you know, try to switch over to decaffeinated forms of those drinks. I used to be a, a tea drinker in the morning until about noon. But now I've actually gone completely decaffeinated. And it takes a while to get used to. I'm not going to pretend it's quite the hit that you would like. What studies have found, though, which is interesting, most people say I function better with caffeine. It's actually not true. What happens is that you are firstly usually self-medicating your state of chronic sleep deprivation if you need caffeine before noon. You should be, if you're getting enough sleep, you should be able to be perfectly awake. And then what people find is that drinking the caffeine does improve their performance, 
but it only improves it to a level that they could achieve normally if they actually cut themselves off from caffeine for a couple of weeks. So it's not a performance enhancer above and beyond that which you can accomplish by way of sufficient sleep. And by the way, even if you say, well, okay, that's great. I'm just going to sleep my six hours and still keep drinking coffee and get myself back to baseline. Uh, Coffee and caffeine is no substitute long term for insufficient sleep. And we can speak about all of the deathly and disease consequences by way of chronic sleep uh, deprivation. Yeah, fantastic. The very, very last question is sort of on that, you know, people who say they only need six hours of sleep, and they actually have the, the sleep gene and they don't need to sleep any more than that. I was fascinated by by your research in this space. So could you just very briefly touch on the reality here? Yeah, I can. And so there is actually a rare genetic mutation in a gene that is called DEC, D-E-C, which regulates a wakefulness-promoting chemical in the brain. And these people seem to be able to survive on somewhere between five to six hours a night without measurable impairment. And at that point, when I sort of give these talks, usually people say, I'm I'm one of those people. (laughs) It is a tiny fraction of 1% of the population that appear to have this gene. You're much more likely to be struck by lightning in your lifetime than you are to have this gene, by the way. so. The number of people that we know who can survive on six hours of sleep or less without showing impairment rounded to a whole number and expressed as a percent of the population is actually zero. We know that every major disease that is killing us throughout the developed world has significant and many of them causal links to insufficient sleep. Currently, that list includes Alzheimer's disease and cancer, which are the two most feared diseases. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't stop there. We know that people who are sleeping less than seven hours of sleep have a significantly higher risk of dying from cardiovascular disease, heart attack, stroke, diabetes. They're much more likely to be overweight. They're far more likely to suffer from depression, anxiety, and they have a considerably higher risk of suicide as well. So there really is no hiding from sleep. I think the take home here is that sleep, unfortunately, is not an optional lifestyle luxury. Sleep is a non-negotiable biological necessity. It is a life support system. And it is probably Mother Nature's best effort yet at immortality. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Matt, that's such an important topic. You know, that we, you just literally unpacked so much content and valuable research for the listeners. And for anyone out there, even if you don't have any problems with sleep and you feel like you sleep great, I think it's really interesting to understand the effects of burning the midnight oil for work and then a lack of sleep, not only on our body, but also on our brain. And I'd just like to say thank you so much, Matt. And and where can corporate professionals here in Australia find you? So I'm all over the internet and social channels. Sleep Diplomat is where people can find me, sleepdiplomat.com. I'm at Sleep Diplomat on Twitter. Feel free to reach out. And should you want to learn more about sleep, you can uh, read the book, which is called Why We Sleep. Fantastic. Thank you so much. To continue on your calm journey, I really encourage you to download a free ebook on how to live a calmer life. Simply head to eqminds.com to receive your free copy. And if you're in a really good mood, please feel free to give us a five star rating. It helps other people find the podcast, and then together we can help other people with their mental health and well being. Thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. And we'll see you again in a week. This podcast is for information purposes only. 
Any advice is not a substitute for medical guidance. Any use of information contained in this podcast is used at the user's own risk.